I might invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and and open it to the Gospel of Matthew. There at the very beginning of the, the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13. Page 108 and 819 in the uh, Pew Bibles. For the past several weeks, I've been studying some of the parables, and today we come to two very brief ones. They are called kingdom parables, many of these that talk about the kingdom of God, and Jesus draws some various analogies, and so today we have two. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. Hear God's word. The kingdom, this is Jesus speaking, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let me lead us in prayer again. Our Father, we, uh, we do have hungry souls We pray that you would nourish us. Jesus is the bread of life. We have thirsty souls. We pray you'd give us that water that we drink of it and we'll never thirst again. Uh, Open our eyes now to your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever uh, dreamed of finding some kind of treasure? Maybe as a youngster you thought about that. People often do. They dream of finding some valuable treasure items, even gold or so forth, in some old building or in a cave, or at the beach, they hope to try and discover something that has escaped everyone else's attention. We find such fantasies, especially as children, in books like Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, or even in Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer when they found the treasure. In our day, we may call that unrealistic, and yet from time to time, Even recently, such discoveries are made. We know that there were many Spanish ships that went down due to hurricanes in the uh, 1600s and 1700s, off Florida and especially off the Florida Keys. The most famous of those that has been recovered was recovered uh, in 1985 from the sunken Atocha. It sank in uh, September of 1622 during a hurricane. It yielded a treasure of $400 million that was discovered. And then in just this past September, two months ago, there was a Florida family with decades of experience in searching for treasure, and they found a pretty significant treasure uh, in September just off the beach, 100 feet from the shoreline in Fort Pierce and only six feet of water. They found a whole trove of between 60 and 70 feet of of gold chains, Spanish gold chains and coins worth about $300,000. And there there are many, many other stories like that. But in these parables, these two parables, Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a treasure, to a treasure that then requires sacrifice and commitment to obtain it. The two parables essentially are the same, and that is that the kingdom of God is worth everything to obtain. The kingdom of God, just to remind you if you weren't here with us when we've looked at some of the previous parables, that phrase is used to wherever God rules. The people of Jesus' day 
We're looking for a kingdom to come on earth, a, a military kingdom uh, to break the backs of the Romans and to deliver them from the bondage that they were in in imperial Rome. Jesus is teaching otherwise. It's the place where God reigns. It is where his commands are obeyed, where his people are safe and secure. And we enter that kingdom through faith in Christ. We hear we call it the bad news and the good news, the message of such, where we are adopted into God's family. How, how is it that that comes to happen? Well, God created our, our distant, distant parents, our distant ancestors, Adam and Eve, and they... Though we don't know what language they spoke or what color their skin was or, or, or how tall they were or anything like that, we know that they had senses like we have. They could taste, they could touch, they could see, they could hear, they could smell. But they also had there when God created them uh, a sixth sense, a, another dimension, you might say, to their being, a spiritual sense which was alive and which literally enabled them to walk and talk with God in his very presence. And they loved God because they had been, like you and I have been, created in his image to do so. But something happened to change all of that. They disobeyed God. He gave them one prohibition which they violated. And they broke that command and they sinned. And the result of that, according to the scriptures, is that they died. As God had said, in the day you eat of it, if you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Well, they did not die physically. They lived much longer. But they died spiritually. That, that sense that they had had now had died. And that was the consequences of their, their sin, their crime against God. But even in punishing them, God promised. He promised one who would come later. He promised a redeemer who would come later to make things right. You and I. All of us are born into this world spiritually dead. We start off where they ended up. And therefore we sin against God. We commit crimes against God. And he says the punishment or the wages, the payment for such is death. Now it's just natural. It's part of our hardwiring that we tend to think that if there is a God or if there are gods or if there's some sort of supreme being then I can do good things, I can do moral things that will make that God accept me or make me acceptable to that one. Religious and even non-religious people think that if I just do certain things, it might gain me favor with God. If I just try hard enough, then God will see my good intentions, he'll see my motivations, and I will be accepted by him. And the truth is, according to the Bible, there is nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God, that all the good deeds in all the world cannot do away with our problems of sin and death. They can't take that away. Thankfully, God in his love and his mercy, he sends a substitute who stands in our place to take the punishment that we deserve. His name was Jesus. He became a man. No other substitute would do because he lived a perfect life. He never broke God's law in his thoughts or in his words or even in his actions. He allowed himself to be arrested, to go through the mockery of a trial, to be convicted and nailed to a Roman cross, not for his own sins but for the sins of others. And there was a transformation that took place on the cross. When Christ was on that cross, God put... He transferred all my sins onto him. He put my sins on Jesus, and he punished him 
in my place. So Jesus took the punishment, he took the penalty for my sins. He made a complete, a full payment for those. He died on that cross. And this was the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. That the wages of sin is death. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a tomb. And his enemies, of which there were many, thought this is the end of that. But three days later, he physically rose from the grave. Death could not keep its hold on him because he had paid the penalty for sin. And because he ascended to heaven, before he did so, he told his followers to go into all the world, to all nations, and to tell people about this gift of eternal life, which God now offers us through Jesus. So the question to you and me is, have you received this gift of eternal life? To do so, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God the Son, that he was perfect, and that he died in your place. That you cannot make yourself right with God by your own efforts. That when he died, God the Father took your sins and put them on his son and punished him in your place. And now you turn from going your own way, from living strictly for yourself, and you turn toward him and living for him. And when that happens, you are enabled to begin to live for God. And when that happens, you are enabled, we are enabled to understand and begin to obey these verses. So what is it worth, is what these parables are saying, what is it worth to possess salvation? What is it worth to know that I am forgiven, that I am made right with God, that God is my Father, that my sins are forgiven, that I am eternally secure? What is it worth to stay out of hell? Jesus is saying here that securing a place in heaven is worth everything you have. And it's worth whatever sacrifice is necessary for possessing that treasure, that kingdom, that salvation. The first one's about hidden treasure. There's a treasure that's been hidden in a field, and a man finds it. We aren't told who put it there, how long it has been there. We do know that in the ancient world, and even in the not-so-ancient world, People often, especially in times of war, would take their valuables, they would hide those out in woods, if there were trees, in the ground, in a field. Their valuables, they assumed, would be safer than being in a house, in a house thieves, or the enemy could come in and they could find them. But in a field, the treasure, it was assumed, would be safe, but there was a problem. And that is, if the owner died, and if he had not told anyone else where the treasure was, then he would carry his secret to the grave and it would be lost. The man who finds this treasure in this parable may, we don't know, but he may have been hired as a worker. He may have been renting the land. He may have been plowing one day. He may have been digging up a ditch. Maybe he was even planting a tree. But whatever the case, as he's going about his day, he finds this very treasure. We aren't told exactly what the treasure was. We, we do know the man is dumbfounded. And it's life-changing. He'd never seen something like this before. If he can buy the field, then by law, everything in the field, including this treasure, would be his. So he comes up with a plan. In a matter of moments, he comes up with a plan. He puts the treasure back in its place. It tells us here he covered it back up. 
We assume he goes home and he determines if I can purchase the field and I will possess the treasure, but he doesn't have the funds on hand to do so. So he has a big garage sale. Everything must go. Liquidation of all of his property. You know what happens when you have to sell things in a hurry and out of necessity. What happens? You get top dollar? No, in some cases you practically give it away. I had a friend whose child went in the hospital and he told me in one afternoon he sold three cars, his own cars. Two were BMWs. He said, I had to have the money. I had to have it right then. And so I sold them as fast as I could. And I know I sold them for far less than they were worth. Well, this man, we can just assume, liquidated everything. But he knew what he was doing. He knew why he needed the money so that he could purchase something that would far exceed all of the possessions that he was now selling. This is the case, Jesus is saying, with respect to knowing God, with respect to salvation. It's a treasure, and finding it is an exceptional blessing. And so to obtain it, we need to understand a couple of things. First, if you are to treasure salvation you must understand its value. You must ask yourself, do I regard life with God, do I regard forgiveness of sins as something valuable? Many of us even wonder if it's desirable, much less valuable. Why do so many today in our country and in many of the European countries that used to be very, very Christian, but now are anything but, why do so few pursue God? I mean, is, in our land, is atheism really that attractive? It really isn't. It's got some vocal people that are very, very aggressive. Uh, but if you look at the polls of the majorities, most people still claim to believe in God. Uh, and so the point is not that it's antagonistic. It's just that Life with God seems irrelevant. Irrelevant. A pastor asked me and uh, our college-aged daughter a year ago, he asked me a question. He said, can you imagine today a college student at a secular university trying to navigate life based on the principles their parents taught them? He said, that's what we're dealing with. It just seems irrelevant. It doesn't seem initially to speak to the issues that most of us are faced with. There would be no question of acquiring the field if you knew there are gold coins or oil or diamonds there. But in this case, the field has a chest in it, and we open up the chest, and it's filled with the kingdom of God, which we can't see. It's invisible. And it makes it all the more difficult that I can't touch it. It doesn't seem real initially. You come to church and you hear about things, but yeah, I can't see forgiveness of sins. I can't see reconciliation with God. I can see these other things. It's right in front of me. I'm teaching a class um, to students that have, have never learned the Bible. And last week we looked at Israel, the nation of Israel. We're going through the Old Testament, some of the main stories, and I was teaching them the, the period of the judges, which covered between 350 or so, almost 400 years. And during that period, the Israelites have gone into the promised land. They've spent the, the years wandering in the wilderness. Now they've gone into the promised land. And that because they had not cleared out their enemies, there's this cyclical history repeating itself over and over of where they, 
they, they get in trouble, they cry out to God for deliverance, and God sends a person to rescue them, and that deliverer is called a judge. You know about some of those, Gideon and Samson and Deborah and, and many others. Well, the last judge was Samuel. And so now almost 400 years have transpired. Samuel is God's man. He's also like a prophet. And the people rise up and say, we want a king. We want a king, somebody we can see. And God, Samuel is upset, and God says, basically, Samuel, they're not just rejecting your leadership, they're rejecting me, God says. I have been their king, but now they want, now they want an earthly king. Well, there were two reasons they wanted a king. They say, we want to be like all the nations around us. They have kings, we want a king. But secondly, they did not want to look to God as their king, their, their leader, their deliverer. They wanted somebody they could see. And God says, okay, I'm going to give them a king, but tell them how much it's going to cost them. He will take, he will tax, he will subscribe, subscription for your sons, your daughters will be bakers and perfumers and all this kind of stuff. So I'm going to give it to them, but they're going to cry out for help once they have what did they want? They wanted, a God, they wanted a king, they wanted a deliverer who was tangible that they could see. Now, here's what the Bible teaches. That you and I and every person has a soul that will never die. Your soul will live forever. Now, we can't see it. Chip, prove it to me. Put one on a table that I can touch. I can't. Now... Whether you believe that you have a soul that will live forever has no determination on whether it's true. That does not determine whether it's true or not, whether you believe it. It's true. It's real. Now, do you understand the worth of that soul? you see that as valuable? Do you understand the value of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you have peace with God and that you can have eternal life and that when you die, you will go to heaven and you will not go to hell. Do you see the value of that? Do you understand the value and worth of a new heart, of a relationship with God, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to open God's word to us, to comfort us in our sorrow, to guide us into all truth? Do you understand the value of being part of a local church fellowship with mutual encouragement and edification that sustains you? See, there, you have to value that if you're going to pursue it. Now, beyond these eternal benefits, there's the joy, the relational joy of knowing God. Some of the phrases in the Psalms say in Psalm 37, He fulfills the desire of our hearts. Psalm 4 says He puts gladness in our hearts. Psalm 17, He satisfies us with His likeness. Psalm 63, His loving kindness is better than life itself. The Apostle Paul speaks of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. See, we were made to know God. You were made to know God. To use a uh, well-known phrase by Pascal, there's a, our hearts have a God-shaped void. There's a God-shaped vacuum inside of each of us that only God can fill. So our hearts are hungry, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We are thirsty, and Jesus says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as Scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of water. So do you value that? Second, if we're to treasure this, we must understand the exceptional opportunity. The opportunity, the exceptional opportunity for salvation. 
See, in both cases, the man in the field and the, the merchant, as we'll see in a moment, buying the pearls, it is an opportunity that is rare and it's short-lived. It's not every day. And it takes a trained eye to recognize it. Someone else may not have recognized the pearl. Someone else may not have recognized what this man recognized as a, as a treasure. I mean, think about us. Who would pass up the opportunity if you had $5,000 and you had a credible source that I can, said, I can sell you a 1933 gold double eagle coin? Will you buy it for $5,000? If you're knowledgeable, you will, because you'll know that 11 years ago, one sold for $7.5 million. What if someone said to you, I've got a 1909 T206 Honus Wagner baseball card in mint condition. Would you buy that for $5,000? <laughs> One sold this past February, though not without dispute, for $2.1 million. What if you're in bib music one day and you say, what's this old violin back here? I said, oh, I don't know, it's a real old one. It's got some name Stradivarius on it. It's a 1710. Who wants an old instrument like that? I'll sell it to you for $500. If you had the eye and the knowledge, you'd say, I sold, sold, because you'd know that three years ago, one sold for $3.6 million. Would you sell everything you had to be able to acquire those? If you could purchase one of those for a small sum, like the man with the field, you would go home to your family and friends and say, look what I have found. I have found a gracious God. I have found a sin-bearing Savior. I have found an invitation to repent and to believe and to be loved and to be redeemed and to be saved. How is it that I have this opportunity? How was I in the right place at the right time? Could I, could I have that? I'm so unworthy. I'm so oblivious. How can it be? Why do I have such an opportunity? And it's that attitude that we see reflected in so many of our hymns, and in the Psalms of the church, just think of the Psalms in Scripture. David asked in 2 Samuel, Who am I and what is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? What was it that John Newton was thinking when he said that amazing grace had saved a wretch like me or Charles Wesley when he wrote amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? What was it? They were all astonished that this great treasure of salvation had been made available to them. That's what it was. They're astonished. Second parable, quickly, pearl of great price. It begins with the word again, the kingdom of heaven. It's just tying it into the previous parable. We have no mention of pearls in the Old Testament. Okay? They're, they're never mentioned at all, so they were apparently not known about or not valued at that time. But by the time we come to the New Testament in the first century time, pearls had become a status symbol of the very, very rich. Jesus on one occasion says, Do not throw your pearls to swine. Paul gives instructions about women in the worship assemblies. And he said he did not want them to dress in an extravagant way, he says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Pearls were in great demand. History tells us merchants had to travel a great distance to get them. If you got pearls from the Red Sea, typically they were of inferior quality, and the best pearls then would be found in the Persian Gulf and in Ceylon and around India. And so the man in the parable apparently is a merchant, and he's looking for fine pearls. He's on a buying trip. 
We do not know how far he's traveled, but on a particular day in a particular place, he comes across a particular pearl and he knows immediately it is of great value. Now, whether everyone else knew that or not, we are not told, but he knew it. And for him, this is the chance of a lifetime. It is do or die. He makes some mental calculations. He decides, I'm liquidating everything. I'm selling everything I have in order to buy this. Now, just like the man with the treasure in the field, now with the man with the pearl, they know immediately action must be taken. I have to do this now. I can't go home and think about it for a couple of months. And so once he has the pearl in his possession, it says it's time to celebrate. Well, what does it take? What does he have to do to obtain this pearl? Well, he has to sell all that he has. We assume because he is a merchant, he probably was a man of wealth, uh, and he probably had to get rid of a lot. But it was worth it. It was worth it to him. In other words, he too will do whatever he must. No cost is too great. I've quoted J.C. Ryle, the Anglican, from over 100 years ago, almost every sermon, so why stop now? J.C. Ryle said about this verse, men really convinced of the importance of salvation will give up everything to win Christ and eternal life. So to understand this, you must comprehend that the kingdom of God is worthy in and of itself, that it's worthy of your treasuring and of your value. Now, to some people, the idea of uh, paying this kind of cost, selling off your possessions, probably looked foolish. To the uninformed, they probably thought, you are being short-sighted. You're going to need those items. You're going to need that furniture. You're going to need those clothes. You're going to need that silverware or that china that was passed down or whatever. They were probably thinking, have you lost your mind? That's, to the natural person, when someone commits their life to Christ, we think they've lost their mind. It's interesting, the Bible just speaks the opposite. Like when the the prodigal son was away feeding the pigs, wanting the food they were eating, it said when he came to his senses. So in the Bible, you come to your senses when you come to believe in this. But often in the world, we think, oh man, he's lost his mind. When I grew up, my grandparents is they would sit around and talk with my dad on Sundays after church, after uh, lunch. I'd hear them say, oh yeah, we know about old Johnny over there. He, he got religion. He done got religion. And that was not a compliment. <laughs> so from the time I was young, I would hear about that. You can imagine what happened when their own son got religion. And so the Gospels tell us a prime example of this. It's about six days before Jesus will later be arrested and crucified. And there's a large supper. The Bible says it was a grand supper. This is in three of the Gospels, but the one I was reading recently was in John chapter 12. So there's this grand supper, the host, uh, and it's at the house of Simon. And present, present at the supper, we know, were Jesus, his disciples, other people, but including Lazarus, who'd been raised from the grave, and his sisters, Martha and Mary. They're all there at this supper. Well, during the supper, Mary, Mary comes with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume, and she cracks open this container that was to be opened only one time by its very construction, and she anoints Jesus' body with this very, very, very expensive perfume. From what I researched, it said by today's standards, probably about $30,000 worth of perfume. 
Well, the disciples, and we assume almost everyone at this supper is taken back at the extravagant wastefulness of this. Could not this have been something else done with this money? Surely Jesus, who has modeled poverty, basically, surely he will not accept this. And yet, Jesus praises what she does. He praises what the woman has done. Now, why does he do that? And he says, he, he, he rebukes them. He defends the woman. Why do you bother this woman? She was doing a good deed for me. Here was the issue. Mary saw the timing involved. She, in some way, we don't know how, we're not told, she knew this will be my last opportunity. And I want to honor him. I want to prepare him. And I want to show my devotion to him. And so whether Mary knew his life is almost over, we're not told. But she knew I must take advantage of this opportunity right now. It's do or die. It's now or never just like the pearl merchant, just like the man in the field. <clears throat> so she was sensitive to the timing. In fact, Jesus says there in John 12, you will not always have me with you. She saw what others did not see, an opportunity. So here's the way I see it. This is my summary statement, and we're going to be finished in about a minute. Here is the kingdom of God as Jesus is describing it. Here is a, here is a treasure a, that we have a rare opportunity to acquire to gain. But here is the world and what seems so real and desirable that is really temporary, but this looks so lasting and this looks so important. And this over here, I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't taste it. And now you're asking me to invest my life in that when this looks so urgent? The cares of this world? what Christ is saying is the wise person sees this and says, I will give up all of this to gain that. Now, for days I've been thinking, what brings that change about? Because in our natural state, none of us see this as valuable. The only thing that can make any of us that see this as so valuable now see that valuable is God's Spirit changing our hearts. Now, I, I hear hundreds of testimonies being a pastor and when people come to join the church. And they may, be, they may be covenant children of Christian families. They may have never heard the gospel until they got to college. And in almost every case, though, there was some pain and disappointment with this before they chose that. What I mean is something in life... Not always, but in most cases, something knocked the glitter off of this to where you thought the world isn't as friendly as I thought it was. The world isn't as caring and loving as I thought it was. But this is. This is what I want. I've experienced some of this, and I've seen how empty it is, and it looks like something on the outside, but it's not on the inside. This is what I want. Now, the great irony, the great irony is salvation is free. It's a gift of God. We can do nothing to earn it. It's totally given. So it cost us nothing. But it cost us everything at the same time. That's what is ironic about it. Salvation costs us everything in that we relinquish all. We forsake all. We commit all. We believe all. We hold nothing back. Take my life and let it be, we sing. We pursue salvation without regard to the cost. The kingdom of God is free, but it cost us everything in that sense, but it was paid for by Christ himself. 
So how do you begin to value the treasure of salvation? As I've said before, God wants you to get to know him. As you get to know him, you will learn to love him. And as you love him, you will learn to obey him. And as you obey him, you will learn to trust him. If you say, I just, I just can't trust him. I can't trust this enough to sell all and buy that. Well, if you don't trust him, it's because you haven't learned to obey him. And if you haven't learned to obey him, it's really because you don't love him. And you don't love him because you haven't learned to get to know him. So if you're at that point and you say, I understand, but I'm not there. I'm not there ready to liquidate all, so to speak, and purchase this pearl of great price. Ask God to reveal himself to you, to give you the desire to value what he values. May God give us the grace to understand what life is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we have been given one more, at least one more opportunity to uh, the chance of a lifetime by these parables to, to grab hold of this field filled with treasure and this pearl of great price. Uh, give us clarity of where we are with you. May our trust be in you. Uh, may it be in not only in this life but in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen.